All right, if you have your Bibles, I ask you to turn over to 2 Samuel. We're going to be looking at chapters 8, 9, and 10. So hold on to your seats as we work through this. Sometimes when it comes to keeping promises, um, people have no intention of keeping a promise. You know, remember the old, but I had my fingers crossed? You know, when I was a kid, I would often tell a lie, but I felt okay about it because, hey, I never intended this to go anywhere, crossing my fingers. Get that. But, but I think normally, when we make a promise, we tend to keep it, largely. Somebody has said this. I pulled a couple of quotes off of the internet. Somebody says, a promise made is a debt unpaid. Someone else, for every promise, there is a price to pay. And that's true, isn't there? I mean, if they're really important promises, there's, there's a price to be paid there. Some cynic said this, promises and pie crusts are made to be broken. And an old Danish proverb, eggs and oaths are easily broken. As we come to this passage today, one of the things you're going to find that bubbles up to the surface here is the idea of keeping our promises to one another, our commitments. Do you think our world has a problem with that? Do you think we have problems with that? Oh, yeah. I mean, I look around and... And, and, and I think back, I've, I've done a lot of weddings through the years, and, and, and unfortunately, I've, I've, a couple of those folks that I've married are now divorced. But before a whole congregation, they said, in sickness and in health, till death do we part. And it really wasn't true. It was really until I find somebody else who I like a little bit better. That's a little bit prettier. I didn't know that I had to go through this with you. And all kinds of things happen. So, so it, it is true. Keeping commitments and promises is not always easy, is it? Which is why so often people break their promises to one another. What I want to look at today is the fact that we, if you know Christ as Lord and Savior, we should be a cut above that, shouldn't we? And... What is it that should motivate us to move out into all of our commitments and our relationships that we have, our our, our promises that we make to one another? What is it that should motivate us to move out and be faithful in those relationships? 2 Samuel 8 through 10 will help us with that process. Now, we're going to start by talking about battles and fighting and geography. And you're going to think, Finkbeiner, what is going on here? Stay with me, okay? Honestly, stay with me because you're going to find out it's priceless, you know, what we, the nuggets that we find from this whole thing. Second Samuel 8, 9, and 10, there's not a strict chronology between them. Um, probably chapter 8 and chapter 10 are all kind of looking about the time, same time frame, whereas what you find in chapter 9 is a little bit of a different time frame. So, so, and people say, why is it organized this way? It's organized this way because of what he wants to talk about in chapter 11 and 12. So, so I, I get that. So stay with me. 
just, just a quick review of kind of where we've, where we've come from. We started way back in 1 Samuel talking about David as the shepherd, and we've moved through him being a courtier and soldier, a fugitive. He's become the king of Judah for seven years, and as James has, has, has talked to us about, we kind of were introduced to this time frame of when he became king of all Israel. He's about, he's 37 years of age when he becomes king of all of Israel, Okay? So if you just kind of look at that, that time frame, then you can, you, you can see that for 33 years, he's going to be king of all of Israel. And, and, and what we have here in this passage, uh, matter of fact, let me do it like this. Here's now just a look at him as king of Israel. There, there's a bunch of things here, and one of the uh, things I'm not sure exactly where to put, and James, you had talked about this last week, there's debate on some of this stuff, but... but but if you look at, look at what goes on here in David's life, there's a great famine. There's going to be this great war with Ammon and all kinds of other groups. Then there's going to be major family problems. David's going to do some solidifying, but also there's going to be a rebellion. And then he's going to die. And, and, and some of this is rearranged a little bit by the author because he wants you to come away with a very important point. And one of those points is what we find in 2 Samuel 8. 10 to 12 in 2 Samuel 9. That's where we're focusing over the next two weeks. We're going to speak on 8, 9, and 10 today, 11 and 12 next week, which is typically called the David and Bathsheba story. But, but it's all kind of connected together, all right? Now, you say, I can't read all those places up there. It's totally fine, totally fine. All I want to do is make sure that you're not, that you can track with colors, if you look up there, do you see that kind of bluish, purplish stuff there in the middle? You can all see that, right? That's where David started. And all the green stuff is where he ended. That's pretty amazing. Solomon's going to build on that even more. So, so whether you can say, hey, I, hey, what's that? Is that Moab? Right. I know, it, I, I didn't know quite how to do this so that you could see it all. But, but at least what you can say is, I got the colors. There's purple and there's green. And what we find in 2 Samuel 8 and 10, which I want to look at first, what we find there is the extension, some of the extension from that purple into the green. And here's the other thing you're going to find. In chapter 8, it's almost like kind of a panoramic view where he's looking at it geographically, and so he's going to talk about what happens in Edom and Moab and up north. And he's, just, he's going to really literally be encircling that entire purple area to say, look, David has victory here, David has victory here, David has victory here, David has victory here. Okay? Th 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 I'm just trying to give you the big picture. Then in chapter 10... It's like the panoramic slows down. He goes, let me look at this again for you, but I want to look at it from the perspective of the Ammonites. And he begins to kind of walk us through some things in more specific sequel and scenes because in that framework, he wants to talk about the David and Bathsheba story. Okay? All right. So, Finkbeiner, why are we doing a geography lesson? Stay with me. All right? Here's what we're going to find. Oh, and these, these, if you can track with arrows, all those arrows are all the battles that they're going to have as they're extending the territory, all right? 
So this is what I want to say to you today. David experiences God's loyal love in battle. Most of us aren't going to go out of here today and say, you know, I wonder who I'm going to have to battle against when I go out of here. I mean, you're not thinking that. But everybody in here is in spiritual warfare, aren't they? Everybody in here has challenges. And one of the things that God, this was part of what God called David to. If he's a king, he's over a kingdom. And if he's over a kingdom, he's called to protect it as God's representative. So David is going to experience in chapters 8 and 10 the loyal, faithful love of God. James talked about this last week in what's, in what's called the Davidic covenant, where, where God comes and says, I'm going to give you peace from all of your enemies. I'm going to be the God who is faithfully with you, and I'm going to do something you can't possibly imagine. I'm going to run your descendants far into the future, even though most of them are all disobedient until it ultimately comes to Jesus Christ himself. I mean, wow, what a promise. And all the way through chapter 7, chapter 8, and chapter 10, you're just being overwhelmed with the fact that God is faithful to his people. God can be trusted. God is with us. When when it's hard, God is with us. When we don't understand, God is with us because we are his people. And so although David's scenario is battle, it touches every one of our lives. Does that make sense? And I want to highlight a couple things with you. Chapter 8, let me just start reading there. So in the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them, and he took Metheg Amah from the control of the Philistines. Verse 2, he also defeated the Moabites. Look at verse 3. David also defeated Hadadezar, son of Rahab, king of Zobah. All these really interesting names that you're going to say, I never heard of before. But on the chart, it's north. It's the green section north. And to us, it may not mean a whole lot. But to David, it means a faithful God that is expanding his, his, his kingdom as God has promised. Does that make sense? So, so watch that as we kind of work our way through here. Verse 5 When the Arameans of, of Damascus came to help Hadadezar, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 of them. He put garrisons in the Aramean, king, Aramean, Aramean kingdom of Damascus, and the Arameans became subject to him and brought tribute. And here's the critical word, it's, it's sentence. It's repeated twice in this chapter. Look at what he says at the end of verse 6. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. And so he's just beginning to say, hey, 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 hey. Look north. God's giving victory. Oh, you know what? Why am I doing that? I've got a pointer here. Look north. Can you see that thing? Okay. If you're, if you're falling asleep, I'm going to do it. In your, no, I'm not going to do it. Okay. okay. But he's saying, I'm going to give you victory over here. Look north. So, and, and, and everywhere you look, God is there with him. In verses 7, then down to verse, verse 12, uh, 12, he talks about some other areas. But in the process, he says, look, there's one of these kings in the north way north, not Hamath, you can't quite see it, but it's up there. And this guy says, you know what, you can't win against this David guy. So he sends his son down and he says, look, man, we submit, man, we, 
we want to just be friends. We want an alliance. We won't fight. Just be friends with us. And David says, okay. And then he switches to the south, and he begins to talk about places like Edom and Moab. And, and what he says down there is, David goes down there, and there's massive victory again. Listen, look at what he says here um, in verse 14. David put garrisons throughout Edom, and all the Edomites became subject to David. Here it is. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. Do you get that? This is not David doing something on his own. This is David realizing what his stewardship is before God and stepping out and obeying God wherever he went. Something else strikes me as interesting, and you find it woven all the way through this passage. One of the promises, or one of the, I'm sorry, one of the responsibilities given to a king back in Deuteronomy 17 is that you could not amass gold and silver for yourself. And you know what you find when you read through 2 Samuel 8? David amassed a great amount of gold and silver and bronze from all of these battles. And what he keeps coming back to in this passage is that all of it gets dedicated to God. Um, Look down, if you would, at verse 11 and 12. King David dedicated these articles to the Lord as he, as he had done with the silver and the gold from all the nations that he subdued. you see what's going on here? David is being doing as God has called him to do. He's seeing God faithfully work through everything he does. And as he's doing it, he's saying, but I want to obey God in everything. So when that gold and silver comes in, that's all going to get dedicated to God, which God is going to use one day for his temple. Okay, but but now in the process, here is David stepping out. God wants me to do this. And the writer wants us to know God is with him. In chapter 10. Now we kind of get more of a sequential perspective and it's more of blow by blow. And it's a it's an interesting story. It's going to be really important with chapter 11. This is how the chapter begins. Let me just read it to you. Chapter 10, verse one. In the course of time, the king of the Ammonites died, and his son Hanan succeeded him as king. David thought, I will show kindness to Hanan, son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent a delegation to express his sympathy to Hanan concerning his father. Now, I want you to track with me here. All the way through chapter 8... And we're going to find this again in chapter 10. Promised in chapter 7. God has shown his loyal love to David. Hasn't he? And anytime he goes into a battle, God is there. God is there. God is there. God is doing his work. And David is not taking any glory for himself. All the gold goes to God. David now looks out over these different kingdoms. And he says, how can I give, how can I show faithfulness to promises that people have made to me? And and, and he remembers he's in relationship with this Nahash guy, the the, the king of of Ammon. And he says, you know, I want to show kindness to his son. it's, it's, It's the natural outworking. When God has done this for me, I want to try to 
do this for someone else. You, you kind of get that. Now, it doesn't go so well, if you remember. But at least it's David's heart. You know? I mean, it's what he wants to do. He's experienced this. He wants to extend it to others. I get it. I get it. So he wants to be kind to this guy because of his father. All right. When David's men came to the land of the Ammonites, the Ammonite commanders said to Hanan, their lord, do you think David is honoring your father by sending envoys to you to express sympathy? Hasn't David sent them to you only to explore the city and spy it out and perhaps overthrow it? So Hanan sees David's envoy, shaved off half of each man's beard. It's not a good thing. Cut off their garments at the buttocks. That is not a good thing. And sent them away. When David was told about this, he sent messengers to meet the men, for they were greatly humiliated. The king said, stay at Jericho till your beards have grown, and then come back. David stepped out to show grace to this new king. And what this king basically said is, although we're supposed to be subordinate to you, we are going our own way, and what we do to them, we would love to do to you as the king if we had a chance. So we are going to humiliate them because we ultimately want to humiliate you. That wasn't such a good thing. And that led into this massive war. And so the the Ammonites, and, and again, if we're just going here on color, if you go halfway up the purple... To the right, that's about where the Ammonites are um, in, in that particular area. They realize they have blown it big time. So, so what they do in chapter 10 is they say, um, okay, okay, um, we need reinforcements. And this is probably, uh, again, just kind of following the same, some of the same areas, stuff that we've read in chapter 8, but in more, in more detail. They, they go north and they ask for help from all of these people up there in the north. And the Arameans send down this huge group of mercenaries. And they figure, we are going to stop Israel. And Joab and his brother go up to fight them. And Joab says, I'll go after the guys that are coming down to Ammon. I'll fight them. You fight the Ammonites. And then he makes this really interesting statement in chapter 10. And we'll have to leave the results with God. Now, indirectly, that's saying the same thing because look out what God's going to do. And what happens is they absolutely, Joab routes the group that's come down from the north. He routes, and they're just there on the run. Now, they're going to regroup again up north, but they're on the run. And the Ammonites look at the whole thing, and they say, we're going to go hide out in the city. So they all run into the city and hide. And Joab says, okay... I better go back and talk to David about this. So he goes back to Jerusalem. And David says, we'll deal with those guys later. But these guys are regrouping. We better go fight them. And again, they go and they meet them. And in chapter 10, when you look down at verse uh, 15, after the Arameans saw that they had been routed by Israel, they regrouped, had a desert. There he is again. We read about him in chapter 8. The Arameans brought from beyond the Euphrates River. They went to Helam, which, which again, it's, it's the upper pink area, uh, purple area, just if you're interested. Okay. They, they ended up meeting there. Um, they formed their battle lines to meet David, fought against him. They fled before Israel. David killed 700 of their charioteers, 
40,000 of their foot soldiers. He struck down their, their commander. He died. When all the kings who were vassals of Hadadezer saw what had happened, that Israel had been routed, they made peace with the Israelites and became subject to them. So the Arameans were afraid to help the Ammonites anymore. They learned their lesson. And when you get done reading chapters 8 and 10, you think to yourself, David seems invincible. And if he is, and he is at this point, it is only because God is with him. God has made a promise. David, I want you to do this for me. And David steps out in faith and obeys God. And he sees that God is ever faithful with everything that he does. Does that make sense? In chapter 9, sandwiched between these two stories, we have the man who has experienced this seeking now to extend it to other people. See, at the end of the day, I'm already giving away the punchline, but at the end of the day, The only reason you and I as Christians ultimately are people that keep our promises and our commitments and are faithful there is because that's the God who we know. Do you see? And the more we know him and have experienced this from him, the more we look for opportunities to to, to be faithful and to keep our commitments with one another. It's an extension of this. Does that make sense? So what does David do in chapter 9? David, back in 1 Samuel chapter 20, was talking with Jonathan. And Jonathan said this, obviously before he died. Jonathan said, But show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live, so that I may not be quick killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family. Not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him. Because he loved him as he loved himself. That passage tells me back when David was a fugitive and running. He and Jonathan met up, and Jonathan said, David, if I don't make it, will you remember my household? Because you know what happens in antiquity, don't you? If I'm the king, and I beat you, and you're the previous king, I wipe out your entire family, because I don't want that coming back on me. And Jonathan said, David, we are friends. We love each other. Please, make a promise to me. David said, I promise. And this man who through chapter 8 and 10 and through his life is experiencing God's faithfulness, God's faithfulness, God's faithfulness, God's faithfulness. It's the word that's sometimes translated his loyal love, his covenantal love, now begins to look around and say, how can I do that with others? How can I keep my promises? Chapter 9, verse 1. David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, 
There was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? And the word there for kindness is the same word that's used for God's relationship with David. God's kindness, his loyal love, his covenantal faithfulness. It's, 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 It's the same word. Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan, but he is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba asked, he's at the house of Machir, son of Amiel in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. Okay. Here's one of the things we know. Because of another event that's going to happen in the life of David, there's a variety of Saul's sons still alive. And grandsons. And so when he calls Ziba... Ziba, who's kind of over the household of Saul and watching over his lands, Ziba thinks to himself, I better give him the name of somebody connected to Jonathan because I know how much he likes Jonathan. So Jonathan, yeah, this is for Saul, but mostly for Jonathan. Jonathan has a son. The only problem is when this boy was five years old and Saul had lost and, 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 and everybody was fleeing, this boy was dropped and Broke his legs or something happened. He became lame in his feet, so he can't walk to this day. But somebody took him in and and protected him. Okay. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. What else do you say to say to a king? Hello, here I am. What do you want me to do? Right? At your service. Don't be afraid, David said to him. You know why? Because Mephibosheth was afraid. Would you be afraid? Somebody says, hey, uh, Mephibosheth, David wants to see you. David, the king, the king of all Israel. I thought I was safe here. I, 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 I didn't do anything. I didn't cause any problem. I haven't, I haven't bad-mouthed him. I, I haven't gotten an army together. I'm lame. I can't do anything. Why does he want to see me? I don't know. I don't know. He's just, you need to come see him. Oh, brother, oh, brother, oh, brother. <laughs> he doesn't know. So he comes and he falls down and he's, he's scared, and rightly so. And, and David looks at him and says, don't be afraid. For I will surely show you, there's the word again, kindness. I will show you loyal love for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. How are you feeling about this time if you're Mephibosheth? I mean, they bring you in, and you think about it. If he's lame in both of his feet, the Bible says he bows down before him. That's not so easy. And even if he gets bowed down, it's going to be a whole lot harder to get up. But this guy just somehow gets down and prostrates himself, and he's wondering, what's this guy going to say? And David says, don't be afraid. Good, I guess I'm not going to die. Oh, you get all the land of Saul. Really? Yep. As a matter of fact, being that you're here in Jerusalem, anytime you're here in Jerusalem, you can eat at my table. You will be involved in the most intimate of all experiences at my table when I eat. I want you to join me there. What are you thinking as Mephibosheth? 
is this a setup? Is he trying to get me? I mean, whatever. And frankly, there's, there's been some liberal commentators that actually look and say, David wasn't being faithful here at all. David was just grabbing his enemies, putting them as close to him as he could so he could watch over them. Hmm. That's not what the text says. David is reaching out and saying, I made a promise to Jonathan. Here's one of his sons. I want to bring him as close as I can, not because he's a threat, because I want to show him love and care and concern. He says, you will never go without a meal again. When you're at home, Ziba and his guys will feed you. When you're here, I will feed you, and you will be in this intimate relationship with me. What a transformation. This guy's probably in his early 20s at this point, Mephibosheth, and his whole world gets turned upside down. Look at his response in verse 8. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Tells you how he viewed himself. You say, well, he didn't have the best image. Well, and David had used the same kind of language with Saul, if you remember earlier. But Mephibosheth says, I, I, don't, I don't deserve any of this. But, but faithfulness is not about deserve anyway, is it? Is it? I made a promise. You think of a man and a woman who have been married for 40 or 50 years. And one of them gets sick. And the other one makes a commitment to care for them until they go and pass into eternity. And they often wonder in the process, honey, honey, you could put me in a rest home. You could do all kinds of things. Why are you doing this? And the guy says, because I love you. Yeah, but I, 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 I can't respond back to you anymore. I, I can't do anything for you anymore. I can't make your meals anymore. I can't do anything. But I made a commitment to you. I made a promise. And I know a God who always has kept his promises to me. And so what else would I do but that, honey? Do, do, do you see how that works? When there is a deep appreciation and, and understanding of this from God, there is then a, a stronger commitment to move back into my relationships and commitments and say, I will fulfill my promises. Do you see that? Powerful stuff. Verse 9, then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belongs to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants, so he had quite a few people too. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servants to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah. And all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. 
Do you see what he's doing? One of the things that's interesting to me, Mephibosheth has given Saul's land so he could go north there and enjoy all that, and Ziba would provide all the food he wants. But guess what? Where does Mephibosheth hang out? In Jerusalem with David. <laughs> I mean, he has a choice. He's saying like, I want to be with the king, man. I want to be with the king. That's his choice all the way through. And we're reminded all the way through too, twice we're told in this passage, he's lame in the feet. It's not about what Mephibosheth can give back. It's about what Mephibosheth receives because of a promise kept. Does that make sense? So how do we put all this together? First for David. Since David experienced the covenantal loyal love of God through faith, he extended loyal love to those with whom he was in a covenantal relationship. You say, oh, Finkbinder, I'm not a king living hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago. So, like, what, what of it? So, perhaps we could say it like this. We should faithfully keep our promises to others because we have experienced that our faithful God keeps his promises to us. I, I know of no greater motivation to be faithful in all of my relationships than that I serve a God who's forever faithful to me. Do you realize that? That will transform our marriages. That will transform our parenting. That will transform the way we relate to our parents. That will transform how we treat one another as members of this body. We make commitments, don't we? You come to a church like this, you become involved in a church like this, you make commitments. You get married, you make commitments. You have children, you make commitments. You, you, you take on, you're an employer, and you take on employees. You make commitments. You become an employee. You make commitments. That's how it works. At every level, we have commitments. And sometimes, frankly, it's easy for me to say in some of my commitments, oh, my goodness. That, isn't it? Oh, that's hard. What a pain. I, whatever. And you know what helps me again and again and again? Is to pull back and think about God. And folks, I know so much more than David. So do you. The, the Davidic covenant and what's called the new covenant collide in Isaiah 55. And now all the blessings of the Davidic covenant are connected to the new covenant. You know why? Because one day one would come by the name of Jesus Christ who would be the fulfillment of the Davidic and would hold a cup before he dies and says, this cup is the what? New covenant in my blood. It all comes right to Jesus. I know so much more than David. I know the ultimate fulfillment, Jesus Christ. I've been given of his spirit when I trusted him as Lord and Savior. He's given me a family around, an immediate family, and a church family around to hold me accountable and encourage me to do all those kinds of things. And I look and I think to Romans 8 where God says, look, if I've given you my son, I will give you everything that you need that I deem good. 
Now, it's not everything I want. There's a lot of things I would want that I don't get. And even right now as a congregation, we have some of our brothers and sisters who are struggling physically. And and we pray like the dickens for God's healings, don't we? We should. But it's not always in God's plan, folks. But you know what I know? I know for for Dan and 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 for Russ and 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 and, and for hope and I don't really I, I shouldn't even start saying names because I'm gonna forget your name. Sorry. For all of you that struggle, sorry. Okay, there's a whole host of us. You know what I know? I know whatever you go through, God is faithful. And he's good. And if the healing doesn't come on this side of the grave, it will on the other. And this good God who is with you will never, he will be ever faithful to you because you are his child. And he will ever love you. And that will never change. And I know all of this because of Jesus, the ultimate David. So how could I go home to my wife and say, oh, honey, it's getting kind of old between you and me. Maybe we should throw in the towel. You know why I shouldn't do that? Because at the end of the day, I know a God who is always been faithful to me. And I look at my wife, Sherry. She's in junior church, so I don't don't have to worry about embarrassing her. I can look at my wife, Sherry, and I can say, I made a promise to you almost 33 years ago. And I am staying by God's grace. I am staying with that promise till the day we die. And I should look to you as church members here, and I'd say, I made a commitment to you to tell you the truth, but to speak it in love. And you made a commitment back to me to do the same. And that's what we're supposed to be about, folks. Promise keepers, because we've experienced it, we extend it. And that's exactly what 2 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10 is telling me. So here's what I'd ask you to do. There at the bottom. I'm going to pray here in just a minute. And in your prayer, I'd like you to do two things. I'd like you to reflect upon specific ways in which God has shown his faithful love to you. Is that fair? If you're a believer, you know where it starts, salvation, okay? And secondly, reflect upon specific ways in which you can show your faithful love to others. Maybe it's in a business context. Maybe it's in a church context. Maybe it's in a family context. I don't know. But I'm going to pray, but I'm going to wait a minute before I even pray. And during that minute, will you thank God for his faithfulness and then ask him to empower you by the Spirit to move back into your relationships with faithfulness too. Would you do that in specific ways? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a faithful, covenant-keeping God. Lord, for those that have trusted in you as Lord and Savior, we have experienced forgiveness at the cross. We have been given your spirit to transform us from the inside out. 
we've been given a church family to encourage us along the way. We, we have seen again and again and again and again your faithfulness in our lives, Lord. Through, through good and bad circumstances, Lord. And Father, for that we rejoice. Lord, help us to think much of your faithfulness. And Father, use that so that when we move back into our relationships, we don't see faithfulness as something we have to do, but it's something we get to do for you in the lives of others. So Father, I pray through your spirit that you will bring to the memory, to the mind of each one here, specific people that that involves. Perhaps it's a mate, perhaps it's a child, perhaps it's a parent, perhaps it's a co-worker, perhaps it's a church member. I don't know. Father, write that name in their heart. And through your spirit, help them to learn the joy of extending what they've experienced to others. In Christ's name I pray.